Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Calling Tau City. Turn on your radio. I know we had some words last time, but that was so long ago. I got your message. It was a little harsh, you know. It's still a little hard for me to hear. Please take it slow. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders network. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. I'm tuning in to your transmissions. I'm waiting to be This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 716. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. Hello, everyone. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. What a show. We have The Orb by Tara Campbell. That is the main fiction coming today. And we also have Looking Back at Genre History with our very own Ames. Yes, that's all coming today's show. I do hope you will stick around and enjoy it. So the main fiction, The Awe by Tara Campbell, with a BA in English, an MA in German and an MFA in creative writing, Tara Campbell has a demonstrated aversion to money and power. Originally from Anchorage, Alaska, she has also lived in Oregon, Ohio, New York, Germany and Austria. She currently lives in Washington, D.C. She is the recipient of following awards from the D.C. Commission of Arts and Humanities, the 2016 Larry Neal Writers Award in Adult Fiction, the 2016 Mayor's Arts Award for Outstanding New Artist, and Arts and Humanities Fellowship for 2018 to 2022. She's also a 2017 Kimberlow Fellow and a winner of the 2018 Robert Grover Story Prize. Now, this story is narrated by Tristan Rutherford. Tristan was born and raised in Alaska and spent her 20s working around the US. She is a poet, writer, voice actor and educator and is pursuing her MFA at Goddard College. She currently lives in Massachusetts with her fiancé and their cat, Pops. So, the Starship Sova is very proud to present. The Orb by Tara Campbell Read to you by Tristan Rutherford There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Every time I stir the biomass, I feel lucky to have been chosen. The stir is flat and smooth, made of blonde wood. The biomass is thick and smells of overripe fruit. I look down into the buttery orange swirls in the bucket, and it amazes me that just a few months ago, I was helping a friend paint her new nursery walls a similar color, but before her baby arrived, I was selected. And now I'm here, making history. I walk across the dusty field to the wooden shed in our small corner of the estate, which is more like a compound, and press my palm to the scanner one of the master's few concessions to modern technology. Electricity and running water seem almost out of place here. Everything else on the compound is rustic. The big farmhouse in which he lives, the bunkhouse where the assistants sleep, a couple of small cabins, one of which is crammed with materials, the other which I claimed for myself by virtue of being the first. This was a fortunate turn of events, given that the assistants are in their twenties, and I'm... not. The air inside the shed is a sweeter, rottener version of the biomass. Although the fumes aren't harmful, the odor would overwhelm at length. I hold my breath against the stink of seaweed, the rot of fertility. The master doesn't want us wearing masks anymore. He doesn't want the orb to think it's unwelcome. We created it, after all. I roll up my sleeves, then dip my hands into the bucket and slather the orb with biomass. We aren't supposed to use gloves, for the purposes of bonding. I enjoy the lushness of the substance. Thick, smooth, slightly grainy, and the swell of the orb under my palms. Its surface is silky and taut, but pliable. There's muscle under there. From time to time, I feel it contract. I start with the orb's sides and bottom, 
then climb onto a step stool to reach the very top of it. By now I can do this without soaking my apron and skirt. After I smooth the biomass into the last bit of its skin, I keep my hand in place, waiting for another contraction. Sometimes, if I wait long enough, there's a rumble underneath my fingers. A purr. The orb continues to grow, to the point where even with a step stool we can't reach the top of it. One of the assistants suggested using a long-handled brush, but the master insists that human touch is essential. He's ordered me to build a scaffold around the orb, so we can reach all of it. Luckily, one of the assistants is a carpenter. I wouldn't know how to begin. I've had to ask for the assistants' help so many times. I'm not their leader, per se, but the master has developed a habit of giving all the orders through me, and through some twisted alchemy of misplaced guilt, the orders become favors the assistants are doing for me, adding to my account on some imaginary ledger. I don't get that feeling from Michael, the carpenter. He arrived with his girlfriend Sarah a month ago. Julian, however. He's been here twice as long, doing the bare minimum, and yet is jealous of everyone else the master notices and seems to appreciate. No matter that Julian's work is sloppy, such that I have to check his batches to make sure he's mixed the biomass properly, he's still angry at those of us who are doing well. He's sure to be piqued when Michael invents some ingenious articulated system that expands along with the growth of the orb. The master loves this sort of thing, praises intricate inventiveness, admires the time and effort lavished on any sort of niche, analog, temporary measure. Soon, Julie and Lucy and I will finish the new structure for the orb. It's something of the master's design. It looks like a Quonset hut, but we call it a hangar because he finds the former term too militaristic. Even though it will involve destruction, he reminds us, the great devouring is ultimately about peace. The orb is now over ten feet in diameter. Still in the old structure, we've expanded Michael's scaffolding as far as it will go, leaving only a small gap for us to slip through with our buckets between it and the wall. Even Julian, the tallest of us, can barely reach the top of the orb from the scaffolding, and the rest of us must resort to slopping biomass over the last bit we can't get to. We'll have to take down the wall to get it out of the shed. But the new hangar isn't ready yet. It doesn't sit right. We tried to follow the master's instructions, but the frame is listing to the side, and we don't dare compound the problem by finishing it. Julian's complaining throughout has not only been demoralizing, but, as it turns out, there may be some truth to it. The blueprints were more sketches than actual plans. The master is angry, of course, but, as he says, he was wrong to expect a team of non-builders to interpret his design correctly. That's why he's bringing on Hamish, a real builder. He's very busy, says the master, because he's qualified, and he will only be here long enough to build the hangar. The master warns us not to speak with Hamish about the project, or, if we must, tell him it's art. 
That's what the rest of the estate is for, after all. This 500-acre art colony with its ramshackle pavilions and gallery barns, its outdoor sculpture and scrap metal whirligigs spiraling in the wind, its massive, rusted robot looming vast on the western horizon. The master has arranged for us to be in this little fenced-off area, courtesy of the absentee matron who owns the estate. She has a history of funding mysterious projects by mysterious male artists, demanding they surprise and delight her with the first viewing in exchange for absolute secrecy. Perhaps she likes the feeling of power, of creation. Perhaps she thinks it gives her an edge of danger in her dotage. If she only knew. Hamish is here. The night before he arrived, Sarah complained to me that we shouldn't have extra people coming in and out willy-nilly. She claimed to be concerned about having an outsider so close to the project, but I suspect she's more annoyed that the master didn't give Michael an opportunity to redesign the hut. I told her to have faith in the master's judgment, and she didn't say anything. But I could tell by her expression she wasn't entirely satisfied. I didn't dare admit to her that my main concern was losing my cabin for the new builder's lodging. Fortunately, the master had us clear out the second cabin for his use. And when Hamish arrived, I grasped the wisdom of this decision, as he appears to be close to my age and similarly desiring and deserving of some privacy. Especially someone like him, who seems the type that would draw other people toward him. Strong build, muscular from work, a clever designer's mind, a welcoming smile and kind eyes. I can understand why he might need his own space to get away to. At any rate, Sarah hardly needs to worry that Hamish will see something he shouldn't, because he and the master spend all of their time together conferring in the farmhouse, then coming out to stare at our shamefully tilted attempt while holding up drawings as wide as their arms can spread. We watch from a distance, the master's eyes warning us away, but I've caught a peek at the new drawings, which I assume are Hamish's due to their clean, straight lines. The masters updated the hangar, adding more scaffolding and thicker walls. I think about those drawings and marvel at how far we've come. From the days of the earthen hut with a padlock and a thousand-gallon tank. Before I arrived, the master says, the orb was no more than a seashell, the perfection of the infinite designer spiraling outward in the golden ratio, At first, the shell was small enough to fit on the palm of his hand, and looked laughably small in its five-foot cube of fluid. Of course, I would never laugh at the orb. It was already up to my knees when I arrived, so I have to take the master's word for its modest beginnings. As it grew, he says, the spiraling of the shell disappeared, erased by a layer of pinkish matter accumulating on its surface. But shortly after I arrived, I was witness to a wonder. The gelatinous matter developed a subtle formation of bulges spiraling from the top to the bottom of the sphere. This sense of memory, this intelligence, 
convinced me that I was part of something truly life-altering, that I had been chosen to help build this new life, that the Master and I would be architects of a new age. Back then, it was just the two of us. Every day, he and I would add nutrients to the tank and take measurements. Temperature, salinity, alkalinity, ammonia, nitrate, phosphate, ionic strength, viscosity, and so on. As the orb grew, its surface morphed from a rosy ooze into something more substantive, condensing itself into something resembling the skin we know now. It hardly looked like something that would subvert the world order, but this was the stage the master was waiting for. The indication that the orb was ready to come out of the tank. Now was the time, he said, for a new assistant to join us. Not an assistant, but a new assistant. I told myself the twinge I felt was merely protectiveness of the project, and I was indeed wary of a new person joining our work, but the master assured me he'd screened Lucy the same way he'd screened me. She'd found his art project online. Another necessary concession to modernity read deeply of his teachings, passed multiple interviews with him, agreed to travel here. The path to power, says the master, is strewn with the bodies of those who wanted to save the world. It is a golden staircase, littered with the remains of those who tried and failed to protect vulnerable animals and ecosystems, to rescue the planet itself. He means the victims of corporate greed, environmentalists, journalists, protesters, activists. But as far as I'm concerned, these corpses include everyone in the world, all of our bodies rotting from poisoned water and filthy air, and processed food, the orb will protect all of us by crushing the drills, poaching the poachers, strong-arming the strongmen, and bleeding out greedy CEOs, devouring the devourers, until human beings finally have to respect the power of the earth. This art is very real. When the master speaks he doesn't share exactly how it will happen, but he has his reasons for keeping that knowledge safe. He has a plan, and it's not for us to question it. Our calling is to care for the orb. The master will share the rest of his vision when the time comes. The morning Lucy arrived, and the master winched the orb out of the water and positioned it over a bedding of damp blankets. She didn't hesitate to reach up and help guide it, dripping to its nest. It would need frequent feeding and watering now, said the master. We were weaning it off the tank, toughening it. I volunteered for the first shift, advising Lucy to go and rest. The master offered to show her the project notes and help her get caught up. I don't like to recall how petty I felt noticing how he placed a hand on the small of her back as he guided her out of the hut. But 
Lucy has turned out to be trustworthy. Unlike me, she moved naturally in the clothing from the start. I've yet to see her fidget with her bonnet, and she's always used the apron for its actual purpose. Rather than keeping it clean like a part of a costume she'd have to return later. Knowing how reliable she is, I don't like to recall how during those first few weeks I listened, after she'd bedded down for the evening, alert for any footsteps around her bunkhouse, any stirring inside, how I watched for any deviation in the master's path from the farmhouse to the hut protecting the orb. Lucy was never the problem. Hamish has come and built and left, though I can't say I wished for the last of those things. But there would have been no way to fully shield the orb as we transferred it, and no one uninitiated can see it yet. Michael devised a way to gently lift and transport the orb to its new hangar. At the same time, the master has screened and initiated a new batch of assistants, bringing us up to almost a dozen now. I'm grateful for the additional help with the orb's care, as well as with chores around the compound. The master has brought in chickens for eggs and cows for milk, and we've begun gardening and baking bread to minimize the necessity for contact with the outside. He says his patroness was very supportive of the investment, finding this all very mysterious and amusing, not realizing, of course, that we are also fortifying our compound to exist in the new world order we are ushering in. But this influx of people leaves me more uneasy than relieved. I observe the new trainees stirring their buckets of biomass. The buckets are metal now, as are the stirrers, and we're all required to wear elbow-high gloves and full-body aprons, men and women alike. The master has changed the formula. It's green now, and runnier, and smells of rosemary and vinegar. When the biomass is ready, I lead everyone up a set of exterior steps to the rooftop, show them how to pour their buckets into the chute, explain how this chute will bathe the orb in the nutrients it needs to grow, tell them their contributions are much appreciated. The new trainees, however, have never seen the orb, let alone touched it. The master says this physical closeness is no longer necessary, because we are biologically engineered into the orb. He once admitted to me how surprised he was that HeLa cells were so readily available, even for artistic endeavors, which allows him to describe his work this way. The orb is already enough like us, of us, for the connection he wanted to create. Early touch, he says, was sufficient to activate its sense of empathy, its instinctual bond with those of us who mean it well. Like will protect like. Now we are supposed to treat it with respect, which doesn't include touch. Anymore. At least, not for the orb. After the last trainee empties her bucket, I show them all how to clean the equipment and send them off on their next assignments. This is where the genders separate again. Some of the women cooking and cleaning in the farmhouse with Lucy, others gardening with Sarah, the few men fixing things around the compound under Michael's guidance, Julian monitoring the orb's development, and fuming under my supervision. 
It's clear to everyone, even the master, that he would rather have a team of his own. Add to that the sting that Michael and Sarah were given permission to move into the cabin after Hamish's departure. I walk back out to the hangar and palm the scanner to unlock it. Everyone except the master, Julian, and I have been programmed out. Inside, the air is fragrant. The sickly rot of the previous shed has given way to something fresh and green. A field after rain. The orb is still slick with a dull gleam of biomass. Still feeding. I climb the newer, bigger scaffold so I won't have to crane my neck to look up into its swelling form. I walk the catwalk around its perimeter, where only those of us who've been here since the beginning are allowed to tread. Up close, I can hear it growing, crinkling with a tiny, wet... Life before the orb seems so distant now. It's been a week since anyone has seen Julian. The last time I saw him, I was on my way out of the hangar. I stopped. It's not that I'd done something wrong, but I didn't have a particular reason for being with the orb just then. It was night, and I wasn't sure if he'd seen me, so I hurried around the corner out of sight. My first thought was to just go to my cabin and forget it, but I couldn't. Julian had been stirring things up recently, disgruntled by Michael's increasing prominence, accusing the master of being attached to certain new trainees. Although, I have to admit, it does seem that the master has taken a special interest in the new recruits. I only got a few steps before I turned back to see what Julian was up to himself, sneaking around at night. Perhaps I was paranoid, but When I saw that he was heading toward the master's farmhouse, I was alarmed. What if he'd seen me just then? What if he'd seen me all those other times, visiting the orb when I wasn't supposed to? I followed him at a distance, and by the time I reached the farmhouse, the master had already let him inside. Standing in the shadows outside, I couldn't hear anything in particular, just muffled voices rising and falling. After several minutes, the voices got louder, and footsteps pounded the floorboards. I ducked around the corner of the house, and from there I heard the front door creak open. Two sets of shoes clomped across the porch and down the front steps. Let me show you, Julian, I heard the master say. You deserve to see. That was a week ago, and... No one has seen him since. Man is the apex predator. We all knew this before the master told us. It's why we came. We're here to balance the scales. To create another life form that can mitigate our domination over all other life on the planet. For the good of the earth, we're here to create something more powerful more durable than humans and all of our technology, something to keep us in check. The orb shares our genetic material. It will have a deep knowledge of us, the way a stem cell knows how to build itself into skin or muscle, blood or bone. It will know what we need, 
our weaknesses, how to kill us. And, I believe, it will share our instinct to save itself above all other forms of life. But it had to be done. Just like the Master tells us, other systems for mitigating human control, earthquakes, floods, disease, drought, crop infestation, were random and untargeted. Nature doesn't care who it kills, and oligarchs have the means to avoid these plagues. Stockpiles of food and supplies in undisclosed locations, private planes to escape, hired guards for protection, and piles of money to keep them loyal. As long as the same corrupt figures remain in charge of man-made systems, he says, they will continue to be destructive. But I've been thinking. What if it's not just specific people that are to blame? What if human nature is to blame? Amassing of resources leads to the fear of losing them, which leads to the amassing of more resources to prevent losing the original resources. I get that. Coming here is what broke me out of that perilous cycle myself. So maybe it isn't certain individuals that need to be eliminated, but our entire flawed species that needs to be put in check. There has to be a counterpoint to our absolute power, doesn't there? The Master believes we can teach the Orb who to target. He and I might simply have different ideas of how wide the net needs to be. Either way, we needed to create something more powerful than us, something we couldn't kill. It was the only way. Last night, I saw the orb give birth. It was in the hangar. I was concerned for the orb, because even these few weeks after the move, it's already beginning to outgrow its new environment. The Master says we don't have enough funding to expand the structure, so we're creating space in the other direction, excavating into the ground. Instead of starting right away, as I thought he should, the Master wasted days on additional training and an oath-taking ceremony before allowing the newest recruits to enter the hangar and see her. The work has been slow, with pickaxes to break through concrete floors, shovels to clear away rocky dirt. I fear we're not moving quickly enough, but the master doesn't want to upset the orb with the noise and exhaust of more powerful tools. We've got to dig deep and wide, far enough so she won't roll in by accident, but close enough that we can gently tip her in when her new nest is complete. I need to stop calling it she. The master says that's sloppy anthropomorphizing. Last night, I'd come into the hangar to massage the orb with oil, to soothe its skin during its rapid expansion. Her, its, skin is soft and fragrant as always, but it's begun seeping a milky substance. The master sees it, of course, but he hasn't told us what, if anything, to do about it. The oils are all I can think of. 
and at that point it had been three days since I'd been able to apply any. I don't have the luxury of a special blend. I just have to take what I can sneak out of the kitchen. I've been varying my schedule and keeping the main lights off to avoid attracting attention. Master has changed the orb schedule to include times when it must not be disturbed, mimicking our sleep patterns. During these times, the lights are kept at a low golden glow to provide a comforting environment for rest. I don't think the Master believes that the orb actually sleeps. This is merely his way of continuing its training in our ways. I walked around the orb, running my fingers lightly over its skin to check for lesions. I don't know if the orb can feel pain, but her skin is so taut, I can only imagine she does. Another thing that doesn't seem to concern the master. Now we are not only discouraged from touching her, it's forbidden. I'm not sure how he imagines this tipping in will work. I hadn't even completed a circuit around the orb when she began to shudder. The milky fluid rose to the surface of her skin, cresting in a cloudy, glistening slick. This time, however, the liquid didn't simply run down the sides and drip to the floor. It coalesced, growing thicker, until I spotted a bulge high up on her side. It must have begun at the very top, too far up for me to see. The bulge spiraled downward along the shuddering orb, circumnavigating her, gathering up the milky sheen as it traveled. I realized that this bulge was not just covering itself in the viscous liquid, but growing itself out of it. It was the milk. When it reached the bottom, it rolled off the orb onto the floor. It was now a separate, autonomous orb in itself. The orb shuddering slowed, then stopped. The smaller orb, about half my height, leaned against the larger one, suckling a few deposits of milky fluid it had missed, absorbing them into itself. Then it rolled toward me. I quickly stepped to the side and the new orb headed toward the door. For a moment I panicked, but the door was locked and the orb couldn't reach the release bar. Somehow I was convinced that its lack of height was all that stopped it from pressing the bar and freeing itself. I followed the little orb as it explored the hangar, rolling across the floor until stopped by a wall, then following along that wall until the next barrier. Shelving, a desk, a pile of boxes. I followed it the way one might follow a baby or a puppy, lingering at a solicitous distance as it investigated its world. The orb completed a circuit of the hangar before returning to its mother. I realized calling her it, mother, is more sloppy anthropomorphizing, but then the master wanted to create something close to human. And it was very human in this. The smaller orb approached its mother once more, absorbed a last few drops of milk, then rolled itself down into the excavated hole in the floor. I ran to the edge and looked down just as the last of its body slipped into the earth. I don't know how long I stared into the hole. 
Eventually, I sensed a wetness between my legs and went back to the privacy of my cabin. There, I found my underwear damp, with a milky discharge that smelled of vinegar and rosemary. I should tell someone. In all of his planning, the master has never spoken of anything like this. I can't tell him, though. He'd tighten access, lock me out of the palm scanner, keep me farthest away of all because I broke the rules. I wasn't even supposed to be there. No, I can't tell him. But it's not because I'm concerned for myself. I'm not the one who needs protection now. It's her. I haven't been able to concentrate for days now, ever since I saw the birth. I need to tell someone, but who? They all feel like part of the master now. He chooses a new young man or woman every couple of weeks, lingering near them as they work, calling it mentorship. It's clear which ones are interested, how they straighten their backs and lean their head a certain way, smile with a certain warmth. Later, he'll bump into one of them on his stroll, invite them to his farmhouse for dinner. More than a few of the young workers have developed a fondness for solitary walks. I'm too old to be of interest to him. He wants the young, the beautiful, the bountiful, bound to him. The master has fierce appetites and a golden tongue, and they are all mesmerized. From the very beginning, they were invested in our project, content to be part of a larger whole. He's merely adjusted the details of the arrangement. I'm not bitter that he's never come to me, that Hamish never noticed me. I'm past caring. This just means I have more time for my work. For the orb. For now, I'll scratch my misgivings into the dirt with a fingernail, whisper them into the grass for safekeeping. I'll continue to rub the mother with oil and reassure her that, Unlike Julian, who is still missing, her child will return. I awake from a deep sleep, my underwear damp with milky discharge. I change and rush to the hangar, expecting a birth. That's when I find the skull. As though the orb has been expecting me, the skull lies next to her where I would see it as soon as I entered. I cannot breathe. One by one, the orb lays the rest of the bones out for me, spiraling them down the milky ooze of her bulk, as she did with her baby orb several days prior. First an arm bone, then a leg bone, a series of ribs, a cascade of tiny wrist and ankle bones, and last, a golden ring, an Irish design of two hands holding a crowned heart. I'd always been fond of the pattern, and had said so to Julian the first time I met him, when I shook his hand and noticed this very same ring. I don't know what to do, and there's no time. A digging crew is due any minute. As the orb grows, the master has grown impatient, and the excavation work now starts before dawn. I gather the bones in a wheelbarrow and push them out past the fence to a far corner of the estate. 
Part of me wants the wheel to squeak. Wants to be discovered. Wants the master to be exposed, to pay for what he's done. But then what would happen to the orb? We designed her to be a competitor, a murderer. Despite this, no one seems to see her as a danger. Yet. The bones knock together with a sticky, dull thunking as I dump them onto the ground. As I wash out the wheelbarrow, I tell myself this is for the safety of the orb and the benefit of our project. With luck, some animal will carry the remains away to suck the marrow. With luck, they'll never be seen again. This morning, we settled the orb into the hole, her nest, as the master calls it. The pit is large enough for the moment, but we're all aware it won't last. The master is nevertheless relieved at the time we've gained, time for him to find the next solution. I know he doesn't want to write his patroness for more funding. He doesn't want any outside contact at all anymore but I'm not sure what other options he has. I know we haven't dug enough. Soon enough the orb will press against the sides of the pit. I wonder if it will hurt her. Still, for the moment the master exudes relaxation. He has solved more than one problem. One of the new trainees has been sent away. There's been no announcement, but we hear the master's judgment in whispers in second-hand snippets. She wasn't careful enough, and that kind of carelessness wouldn't do around the orb. She, the trainee, was beginning to show. Some of us wonder in whispers who the father is, what will happen to him. But this is all theater, meant to signal innocence. We all know nothing will happen to the father. Another night of discharge, another dash to the hangar. Another baby orb is coming. The process goes more smoothly this time. The orb a practiced mother. This baby orb is more confident in its perambulations, traveling the room in fluid arcs. This time there is no hole for the baby to sink into. It has been taken over by the bulk of the orb. I open the door and let the offspring out into the night. The afterbirth comes more quickly now as well. Another skull. More bones. Another skeleton's birth. No ring this time. The trainee who was sent away wore no rings. But the absence of proof is not proof. This time I want to leave the bones. I want someone else to find them. But aside from Julian, whose palm no longer exists, the only ones with access are the master and me. I think about hauling the bones outside and leaving them there. I want for there to be repercussions. But on the other hand, I can't bear the thought that there might not be any. That this might be accepted as just punishment for the carelessness the master accused her of. That he might, would surely, 
be excused, even vindicated by her death. But once again I must consider what might happen to the orb. I cannot betray her. We created her, and she's a mother, after all. As I load the bones into the wheelbarrow, I must also admit that I enjoy the power a secret creates. I know are two of the most powerful words on earth. I roll the bones to the same far corner of the estate. The others have long since disappeared. I tip the new remains out onto the same spot. Throwing away the proof of one secret is a small price to keep another. He thinks we'll never tell. Somehow he thinks we won't even remember any of this because he has taken away all our computers, all paper and pens, all sticks. But I will remember it. It will not be forgotten because I'm whispering it to the trees and thrumming it at bees as they buzz by. I'm writing it into the air with my fingers. At night I bend down and mumble it into the earth. Why was he so certain the orb would know the difference between our enemies and us? We tried. That was the idea behind touching the orb, letting it feel our intention. Surely, he thought, it would remember those who wanted it to thrive, and surely it would recognize that we were different from those in power who threatened it, destroyed its environment. We wanted to create a way to fight back. Was it the master's sudden directive against touch that was flawed? Or was it the original plan? Were we doomed from the start? All of this is to say that the orb has disappeared. Not by some magic poof into thin air. There are signs. Streaks of gelatinous matter between the seams of the walls, the cracks in the floor, the slats of the roof as though it exploded outward in all directions, all at once. The master is angry at everyone, least of all himself, which is, as we've all come to expect, but of course cannot say. Everyone thinks the orb has failed, that we've lost it, that we'll have to start again, but I don't believe this is true. Every few nights since the orb has disappeared, a worker has gone missing. The master accuses them of cowardice, of running away to escape his wrath. I might agree, except each time it happens, I wake with the sympathetic discharge of another birth. I've taken to lining my underwear with rags, and the spot where I twice took my wheelbarrow is now gathering bones without me. My little pile has become an altar. The orb is preparing the earth, just as we planned. We just don't know what for. Michael and Sarah are packing their belongings. It's down to four of us now. The two of them, the master and me. Up until the moment of their departure, they ask me to come with them, but I merely wish them well as they walk the path to the main road. The chickens cluck and scratch for food in their dusty wake. 
the bone altar grows. Eggs are a fine and fitting meal, if not a bit monotonous. I've kept up a little vegetable plot of my own, and there are nuts and berries to forage. But it's all right, because there's only myself to feed. I haven't seen the master in weeks now, and I find I'm not that hungry anyway. Now I'm the one who goes for solitary walks, not hoping to meet the master I initially served, but seeking the new one. Seeking her. I walk, and I search for her in a fragment of bone, in a viscous slick on a blade of grass, in a whiff of sweetness on a breeze. I want to place my hand on her skin and know if she still recognizes me. I want to know how many children she's delivered, if she will bear my presence in peace or if she will consume me. I search for her, but I also want to believe she's not searching for me, that she's looking instead for the destroyers of the earth, her enemies, her destiny. I want to believe she would sense the cloudy wetness we still share. But if not, if she did consider me her enemy, would I dissolve away into nothing, extruded into a pile of bones in the wilderness, never to be found or mourned by another soul? Or would I become one of them, an orb, one of her, one with her? And still I search for her, and still am left to wonder, will she someday circle back to find me? Will I ever know what it is to dissolve all the evils of mankind and slip away, down into the dirt, an avenging angel of the earth? And there you go. A huge thank you. Oh, what a tar, what a what a story. Thank you so much indeed. I just loved it. Absolutely loved it. And Tristan, it just worked so well. What a great voice. Thank you indeed, both of you. It was an amazing little collaboration. Right, next is our very own Amy H. Sturgis. We're looking back at genre history. Ames! Hello, my friends. It's time for another look back on genre history. Today, I would like to start in the 21st century, go back to the 19th century, and then stop off for a moment in the 20th century before we wrap things up. So we will be bouncing around the centuries today. The inspiration for today's topic comes from my current work on dark academia, I have talked about dark academia before. I put forth a definition of that genre or subgenre in episode 671 in my Looking Back on Genre History segment. But just as a reminder, I define dark academia literature or storytelling, it doesn't have to be book form, it can be, for example, film, as works that use gothic modes of storytelling. I define dark academia as a subset of the Gothic, with a focus on an academic setting, an educational experience, the cultivation of a dark mood with an emphasis on death, and an interrogation of imbalances in and abuses of power. Now, I think dark academia, like other kinds of the Gothic, 
plays well with speculative fiction. Not all dark academia works are speculative, but many are. There are straight-up science-fictional dark academia stories. And by the way, since we're already talking about this, <laughs> very quick plug here, I also have a scholarly article coming out about dark academia in an academic anthology of essays early this fall. Shameless plug, sorry. So the essay is Dark Arts and Secret Histories, Investigating Dark Academia, and that anthology is Potterversity, edited by Catherine N. McDaniel and Emily Strand, that will be out with McFarland in, I believe, September 2023. So, there you go. All right, all that's to say I'm still working on and thinking about and thus reading Dark Academia. And that brings me to a book I want to mention now. I have just read The Society for Soulless Girls by British author Laura Stephen. It was published in 2022 by Electric Monkey and then in 2023 by Delacorte Press. And here is a description from that Delacorte Press edition. The long version goes like this. Quote, Ten years ago, four students lost their lives in the infamous North Tower murders at the elite Carvel College of Arts, forcing Carvel to close its doors. Now, Carvel is reopening, and fearless freshman Lottie is determined to find out what really happened. But when her beautiful but standoffish roommate, Alice, stumbles upon a sinister soul-splitting ritual hidden in Carvel's haunted library, the North Tower claims another victim. Can Lottie uncover the truth before the North Tower strikes again? Can Alice reverse the ritual before her monstrous alter ego consumes her? And will they give in to the ill-fated attraction that's growing between them? Exploring possession and ambition, lust and bloodlust, femininity and violence, the Society for Soulless Girls is perfect for fans of The Secret History, A Lesson in Vengeance, and The Grimrose Girls, end quote. But now I want to note the thumbnail sketch official description. Quote, a sapphic enemies to lovers retelling of Jekyll and Hyde. This dark academia thriller follows two roommates who must solve an infamous cold case of serial murders on their campus after an arcane ritual gone wrong prompts another death. End quote. And here's what I want to focus on. This is a retelling, a modern, gender-swapped, queer reimagining of Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Now, Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde is an 1886 gothic novella by Scottish author Robert Louis Stevenson. And I'm going to pause right now and defend my pronunciation. <laughs> a lot of people call this Jekyll and Hyde, and you are certainly... Welcome to Do You. That said, I'm going to go with Jekyll for a couple of good and maybe not so good reasons. The good reason is that Robert Louis Stevenson wanted it pronounced that way. So he's the boss, he's the author. Secondly, my favorite audio reading, audiobook version of Jekyll and Hyde pronounces it that way, and so does my favorite film adaptation of Jekyll and Hyde, and I will talk about both of those later. Anyway, that's why I'm saying Jekyll. Now, Jekyll and Hyde 
the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde follows a London lawyer who is investigating a series of strange events related to his old friend, Dr. Henry Jekyll, and a seemingly murderous criminal who skulks around his place named Edward Hyde. And Jekyll and Hyde has become synonymous with this idea of dual identities, dual nature, one's good side and bad side, if you will. Now, it's one of the most famous pieces of English literature. It is a defining book of the Gothic, and it's had a huge impact on popular culture. As I was just saying, if you say Jekyll and Hyde, people know what you're talking about. And if you suggest someone has a Jekyll and Hyde personality, well, that's not good. You want to be looking for that evil persona to come to the fore. Now, I want to underscore that the original novella is science fiction, as well as being a gothic story and a detective story and a morality tale. In fact, it follows Frankenstein in presenting us with a scientist who has removed himself from the norms and conventions and checks of his field and his colleagues. It wrestles with some heavy-hitting issues about human nature and the nature of evil, of how much of human nature is natural and how much might be influenced or tamed or controlled or managed by science. There are lots of interesting scientific issues in this story. It concerns with human evolution and devolution. There's a strong influence of Darwin there. Interests in psychology, even pharmaceuticals, drug addiction is touched on. There's a whole lot going on in Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And at its heart, what do we do with self-discovery, with understanding ourselves, wrestling with ourselves? What do we do with the parts of ourselves we'd like to disassociate from or relegate to the shadows or excise in some way? These are really important perennial evergreen themes, themes at the heart of science fiction, understanding what it means to be human. And so I'm not surprised that the Society for Soulless Girls is finding today relevance in revisiting Jekyll and Hyde. And it's not the only current young adult mystery related to Robert Louis Stevenson's work. There is another one, My Dear Henry, a Jekyll and Hyde remix, published in March 2023 by U.S. author Kaylin Bayron by Fiewell and Friends. It's part of the Remixed Classic series. In the Remixed Classic series, and I'm going to quote now from its official description, quote, authors from diverse backgrounds take different literary classics from centuries past and reinterpret them through their own unique cultural lens, end quote. So we're talking about titles here like Treasure Island, Little Women, Robin Hood, Wuthering Heights, The Great Gatsby, Romeo and Juliet. All of these classic works have received the remixed classics treatment, have been revisited in some way for modern young audiences. And that means My Dear Henry, a Jekyll and Hyde remix, is the first to tackle a classic science fiction work. Now, here is the official description from the publisher. 
Quote, In the remixed classic series, authors from marginalized backgrounds reinterpret classic works through their own cultural lens to subvert the overwhelming cishet, white, and male canon. This gothic young adult remix of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde subverts the cishet white perspective of the original, starring a black queer teen searching for the reason behind his best friend's disappearance and the arrival of a magnetic stranger. London, 1885. Gabriel Utterson, a 17-year-old law clerk, has returned to London for the first time since his life, and that of his dearest friend, Henry Jekyll, was derailed by a scandal that led to his and Henry's expulsion from the London Medical School. Whispers about the true nature of Gabriel and Henry's relationship have followed the boys for two years, and now Gabriel has a chance to start again. But, Gabriel doesn't want to move on, not without Henry. His friend has become distant and cold since the disastrous events of the prior spring, and now his letters have stopped altogether. Desperate to discover what's become of him, Gabriel takes to watching the Jekyll house. In doing so, Gabriel meets Hyde, a strangely familiar young man with white hair and a magnetic charisma, He claims to be friends with Henry, and Gabriel can't help but begin to grow jealous at their apparent closeness, especially as Henry continues to act like Gabriel means nothing to him. But the secret behind Henry's apathy is only the first part of a deeper mystery that has begun to coalesce. Monsters of all kinds prowl within the London fog, and not all of them are out for blood." If you are familiar with Stevenson's original, Jekyll and Hyde, then you can certainly see here where author Kaylin Bayron is riffing on pre-existing parts of the story. She's taking those and running with them in imaginative ways. I think it's really fascinating to see. And I should note that the Society for Soulless Girls and My Dear Henry do not represent the first times we've seen subversive remixes of Jekyll and Hyde. They are legion. And yes, I am looking at you, 1971 film Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, among other works. We could be here all day and all night talking about adaptations and creative reimaginings and riffs, There have been many adaptations of the novella, including over 120 stage and film versions alone. And there have been audio recordings by a number of great narrators. Some of the more famous readers who have science fiction ties include Tom Baker, Christopher Lee, John Hurt, Rory Kinnear, and Richard E. Grant. My personal favorite reading of Jekyll and Hyde, I can't recommend it highly enough, it's just brilliant, is by the late, great Ian Holm. There was a 1990 musical based on the story, and there have been video games as well, and lots of mashups as well, with Jekyll and Hyde paired with other characters, such as Sherlock Holmes. I'm thinking here in particular of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Holmes by Lauren Esselman from 1979. I'd like to recommend in particular one film version of many, and that is Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, an American pre-code horror film 
It was released in January of 1932. It's sometimes listed as 1931 because it was so early in 1932 that it was released. It was directed by Ruben Mamoulian and starred Frederick March as both Jekyll and Hyde in a brilliant Academy Award-winning turn. It's not just an adaptation of Robert Louis Stevenson's novella, it's also deeply influenced by Thomas Russell Sullivan's 1887 stage adaptation of the story as well. And this version, this 1932, sometimes credited as 1931, version of the film, it was a critical and commercial success. It was nominated for three Oscars. And I particularly want to give a shout out to Miriam Hopkins as Ivy Pearson. It's really one of the most memorable film performances I've seen. It's haunting. Miriam Hopkins really makes this film for me. Now, the film was made before the full enforcement of the production code. That's why I called it a pre-code film. And that means it is allowed to do a lot of things that later films in the United States were not. There is strong sexual content. There is strong violent content. When we look at this in my class, my students are, are shocked and impressed by how gritty and how unflinching they see the threat of a sexual predator portrayed in the film. The idea of violence and women's bodies and the critique of sexual and gendered violence, the investigation of rage, this ties closely to a lot of contemporary conversations. It also ties it very closely to the feminism of the Society for Soulless Girls, which is where we started this whole segment. It makes the film a disturbing but important and thought-provoking work. This also, if I may take a quick aside here, speaking of sexual violence, reminds me that the Jiggle and Hyde story and its adaptations, they've also been closely linked to true crime, seen as relevant to or as a commentary on contemporary violence, contemporary issues, for some time, sometimes more than a commentary, in fact, Richard Mansfield, in the double role of Jekyll and Hyde, performed in the stage adaptation at the Lyceum Theatre in London's West End in the autumn of 1888. And his performance in The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde his portrayal of his horrifying transformation from scientist to monster, his depiction of a deranged and violent man let loose on society, caused some audience members to publicly accuse him of being the real Jack the Ripper. They had seen his violence unleashed on stage. They had seen this incredibly compelling depiction of monstrous madness, and assumed it wasn't an act. That's how well he performed. Spoilers, we don't know who Jack the Ripper was, but he wasn't Richard Mansfield. There's no consensus about the identification of the real murderer, but we can mark Mansfield off the list of suspects. I want to bring this fully around to land firmly in science fiction land, 
And I want to note that the conversation that Jekyll and Hyde invites us to have about psychology, about our dualities, our responsibility for the good and evil we put out into the world, that's been a staple of science fiction ever since. And some adaptations may not even look like adaptations at first glance. So I want to give a shout out to, yes, that's right, Star Trek, the original series, The Enemy Within was the fifth episode of the first season of the science fiction television series Star Trek, and it aired on October 6, 1966, for the first time. That episode's writer, a science fiction great in his own right, Richard Matheson, admitted he was inspired by Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. This idea of a character struggling with an evil alter ego and wanted to make the premise even more identifiably science fictional in a 20th century sense. And so, in The Enemy Within, we have Captain Kirk beaming up from a planet and suffering a transporter malfunction, which causes him to be split into two people, one seemingly good and one seemingly evil. And one of the takeaways of that episode is that we need to be whole, because bad Kirk, well, he's awful. He's impulsive, he's irrational, he's violent. But without him, good Kirk is indecisive. He's ineffectual. He is imbalanced. He is not whole. And the episode asks us to consider how to integrate and balance the different parts of our natures, to consider what it means to be a three-dimensional person. And so we come full circle back to both Robert Louis Stevenson's 1886 novella and Laura Stevens' 2022 reimagining. What if we could cut the ugly part of ourselves out? What if we could turn off our anger, who would we be then? Both Stevenson and Stephen asked that question. And like all good speculative works, their answers make us think. And so we have gone from Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from 1886 to Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde in 1932 to the Enemy Within episode of Star Trek from 1966, to The Society for Soulless Girls by Laura Stephen in 2022, to My Dear Henry, a Jiggle and Hyde remix in 2023. I do hope you found this to be of interest. It's always good, I think, to see how a work continues to be revisited and reimagined and reworked for new audiences, while also inviting them to be a part of a longer and older conversation. And I look forward to joining you again when we talk about something completely different, when we get together to take another look back on genre history. Thank you. And there you go. Whoa, Amy, 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 Amy. <laughs> big squeeze there. That was the big squeeze coming over from this side of the pond. Thank you, lass. means a lot. It really does. After all these times, all these years, thank you indeed. So that's it. 2070, 2017, 716. 
put to bed. I hope you enjoyed it. Honestly, I really have. That was a fantastic story there. Oh, and Amy, 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 Amy. So listen, tin. Listen, is that a, is that a, does that sound like a tin can? <laughs> no, but you know what I mean. If you can help out, pop over Patreon is the way to go. Just kind of monthly donations or a PayPal monthly donation would mean so much, man. God, it certainly would. Until next time, I would just like to say good night from me. Thank you for listening.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.